Did you see that quote I sent about his writing style? No, but I was reading about his writing style. Hold on, let me see if I can well, find so, it. Yeah, it was, uh, I texted it to you. This morning? Um, Speaking about different yeah, writing styles of the philosophers? It was, yeah, Brand Blanchard, his book on philosophical style. Swift, Macaulay, and Shaw would say that Andre was hanged. Bradley would say that he was killed. Bosanquet uh, uh, would say that he died. Kant would say that his mortal existence achieved its termination. Hegel would say that a finite determination of infinity had been further determined by its own negation. <laughs> That's funny. But it's, but it's true, man. I've been working through Hegel's phenomenology of mind. or. But, okay, but would that, like... Would that be cons- like considered more poetic, though, the way that Hegel said it, or more convoluted? I, th- I think it's more convoluted, more than poetic, because he basically he create he he created his own like he created his own vocabulary, right? And so I think that's partly because of the, his Gnosticism. I think he creates his own vocabulary, and then you're either in or you're out, right? It's It becomes almost a secret society um, of people that... Know how to speak the language. Think they understand Hegel. Yeah, it's its own language. You have to replace out the meanings that you think you know with new meanings. It's it's very... It's strange, but it's a wit... It's, it's much more of a religion than a philosophy in the way that he lays it out, or a mythology than a philosophy, as he lays it out. So, uh, you know, I, I still am. Um, okay. Let, we should probably start here. Um, Cause last time we talked, you left me. In. How was your vacation? By the way, <laughs> it was very nice. Good. It was very nice. Cause I didn't enjoy it at Got all. To go to the blue mountains. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the blue mountains? Uh, down in uh, Oregon, Joseph, Oregon enterprise, just South of Walla Walla. Washington. Okay. But your vacation did not bode well for me because I had to sit here and wait for you to get back to talk about what in the world we, we do. I think this is probably a good place to start first. This is kind of quick recap of what globalism is because I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think that was really helpful to tie a theological tradition, Christian theological tradition that we know to a situation in the culture that we don't normally use foundational theological truths to think through, right? That's not our tradition. Uh, we don't. Yeah, we right. don't. We don't look at the person of God and try and say, "Well, the error in our society is because we reject the very nature of who God is." Trinitarian, right? And we see that in society and culture. Right. And that was one of those moments. Where it was like, oh man, that's that's phenomenal because we finally get a chance to take our theology and attach it practically to the world, the metaphysics of the world. And it's just one of those moments where metaphysics came right rushing in, like, oh, that makes so much sense. So just kind of right. a recap. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, that's why it's important, right? Yeah, yeah, because we think the way that we think about Trinity is we think about if I get it wrong, I don't go to heaven, right. <laughs> Right. Right. Like, that's how we think about Trinity. It's like, well, we got to get the doctrine of the Trinity right, Jesus, because we get the doctrine of Trinity wrong, then there's no heaven for us. So we got to get that right. Right. But, but we don't say, we don't see. Because we're Gnostics. <laughs> that's exactly right. We don't see yeah. the Trinity in everything, right? Like, it is it is the form right. in which the world, so when we don't see back in Genesis where the whole Trinity's at work in creation. 
Right. And so I think what it is is, so when you start talking um, mythos or mythological stories, what is the, what, where, what are the, what are the things that we start talking about when we're, when we talk like foundational fundamental reality um, where, where we come from, what we are, what we're for and where we're going. Right. You, right. When you start talking mm-hmm. about those things, you always begin telling stories and those are the mythos. That's how we define who we are, what we're for, where we're going, where we come from, right? What is, what is the foundational realities that everything else is filtered through for our understanding? When we, um, when we don't have a clear understanding of the Trinity as that, right? As that God is foundational reality, right? And God as triune is foundational reality and everything is created by him, reflects him. And he is the ground of our being. Everything, every, all other existence rests on him mm. in him. Uh, you know, it, uh, and because as Christians, when we, think that way or when we live that way when um then what happens is uh things start to fall together and fit mm. right thing and uh and when we replace that with a different mythos with a different version of the you know, of the of the foundational stories you things start to fall apart things things crack because you're putting them on a foundation that they no longer fit, that reality no longer fits on. Mm -hmm, Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and so we were talking about globalism and how one of the foundational mistakes that, that is made really in all um, modern, modern, I don't know, philosophical, theological, modern ways of describing uh, the world is that the economic um, understanding of personhood and the ontological understanding of personhood are combined um, or, or, or well, really one consumes the other. The economic consumes the ontological understanding. So, that's the the summary, but what that means is so in in God, right? As He's revealed Himself to us, we know that He is three in one, that He's three persons, one God, and the three persons are all ontologically equal. They have the same essence. They the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all God completely. They are complete. They are all each completely God and they are ontologically equal, but the father and the son and the spirit have different relate, relate to one another in economic realities in which the son submits to the father in which the father commands and sends the son, which the the father and the son, they send the spirit um, and, and, you know, they send the spirit from all eternity. They send the spirit back to one another uh, back and forth between one another uh, in love. They relate as father and son from all eternity. So the father, uh, the, so the son economically in his relation to the father 
exists in submission, but he is not ontologically less, right? So his economic relationship with the father and the spirit, the father, son, the spirit's economic relationship doesn't change the ontological relationship. The ontological relationship is the fundamental equality between the father, son, and the spirit, the economic in in the economic relationship they relate to one another in hierarchical terms um in a joyful loving uh hierarchy right uh, so a joyful loving voluntary hierarchy it's not an ontological hierarchy of necessity it's a hierarchy of love of of voluntary submission um of joyful submission so um when and, you know, can I just pause you right there? Yeah, everything you just said right now puts an end to the arguments against a patriarchal movement and the patriarchal movement as it exists right now. In a, in a sense, because the patriarchal movement that people are having isn't a biblical form. What they're having is something that's antithesis to the feminist anti-patriarchal movement, right. which has been a problem for me. Right. So, but what but you're talking? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, but what you're talking about is reestablishing the foundation of the way the world is made so that in marriage, submission doesn't change the ontological realities of the relationship, <laughs> only the shows the beauty of it through the economic relationships, right? Right. When so you have you have something you know, you'll you'll have people say, "Well, why do we, you know, the the Bible tells um, wives to give the gift of submission to their husbands, right? To submit to their husbands, and um, and as soon as you say, wait, but that doesn't make any sense. Aren't they equals, right? You have not. You're not thinking in trinitarian terms because Jesus submits to the Father, and He is an equal. And you know, we we um, uh, Karl Marx says that a prostitute is more valuable than a housewife. Because she makes more money, right? In the economic sphere, she is higher up than the housewife who has no income, right? Wow. And, and that is a, uh, that's because he sees the equation of the economic relationship as the, a working out of the ontological relationship, right? Or the but only reality, not, yeah, the only, or the only yeah. realities that exist are economic relationships. Right, right. And so you have this really um, beautiful Trinitarian view in which um, there is, you know, there there is no male and female considered ontologically, right? There's no male and female where one is higher than the other, right? That 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 is that ontologically men and women and children and are all equals ontologically. They're all equally human. A husband and a wife and children are all equally human. And there's no threat to it to say, and there's an economic hierarchy, right? And it's not, it's an economic, we have taken ec economics and made it all about money, right? But economics has to do with the organization of the home. I mean, house that's law. The, yeah. Right. The, yeah. The house law. Right. So, so it's, it's about the relational organization of the home and then the financial, uh, financial activities grow out of that understanding of the relationship. Okay. So of the home. So, so there's a few things, man, I know we're gonna get to, but this is actually, it's funny because we're talking about Hegel right now. This is really interesting, mm -hmm. but 
this is why. Okay, so when you see something like the social justice movement come in, feminism come in, critical race theory, and 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 all these other kind of problems that we're having right now, we're really having in one way or another. This is a metaphysical problem, but one that traces itself all the way back to the foundations of who God is in the Trinity, right? So right, because right. what we've done is we've we've had conversation and we've acted and we've engaged as if the economic realities themselves are the only things that exist. So we in our marriages act that way. We in our our communities act that way. And so when something like abortion comes in and we're trying to argue with our culture about abortion, part of it is that they see no economic realities for that person in the womb. So therefore they can't be valuable. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so, but, and the problem is often you get a pro life folks that have argued swallowed the same the way. Bait. That's and right. so they argue about the potential. Right? That was just that happened recently. A, Supreme court. That's what yeah, they were arguing. Can right. suck his thumb. The, can heart. Be, yeah. Right. Yeah. And you think, okay, so now, it, and, and it is true. Right. And so it's, it's not as if that's not, true and that shouldn't be a part of the argument but that's actually already you you've already at that point bought into a process metaphysic mm. uh, in which things eventually become what they're created to be the ontological right? realities they aren't, ex- aren't they don't assumed. have an ontological reality now right. there is a process aspect economically to our the, the, so economics is all about process, right? So uh, um, right, a man right. and a woman get married, and they become they they enter into a new relationship. They become a, a new family that wasn't there before. There's a process in which they grow and mature, and they become something that they weren't. There is something to that, but that's all in the economic sphere, not in the ontological sphere. Um, they they're related and they affect one another and um but in the in a triune metaphysic you don't say which is higher ontology mm. or economy what which is higher being or relationship right what you do is you say well no those are both eternal realities in god right and they are pers- they are uh perspectives by which we look at the same thing mm. right we look at the father son and the spirit and we and one in one perspective ontologically they are equals in another perspective they exist in a hierarchy right and you and you don't say well which is more fundamental mm. right you say amen right mm. they they exist in those two ways amen perspectively we can look at them in two different ways um but they don't neither one of them subsumes or swallows the other right and um and when our families reflect that right you get something beautiful and gorgeous right so um karl marx would uh, i've been i've been trying to work through how do you how do you how would you nail this down? Right. And, um, and I think, so we, when we say what is a human being very often people will say, you know, a homo sapien, right. Homo sapien is a term that was invented, um, in Kant's day. It means thinking man. And, um, 
thinking, you know, thinking primate really. Um, and that it was invented by the, the gentleman who also was the first one to put human beings onto the list, uh, onto the chart of natural beings, natural creatures, wow. right? Before that, when you talk about people, you would say, well, people are over it all, right? They're, they have dominion. Um, over all of the animals, and then here's the animals. They weren't put into the category as one of the animals, right? And, you know, Solomon says, when you look at just our bodies, when you take uh, everything else out and, you know, you just look at a dead body of a human being, and then you look at a dead body of a deer, um, you can't tell the difference, right? Scientifically speaking, you can't tell the difference. So you have to, but but by faith, um, we know so that, we, there is a difference, right? Under the sun, with life considered apart from God, Solomon says, who knows if the spirit of an animal goes up and a man goes down or a spirit of an animal goes down and a man goes up. We don't know. You can't see any of that scientifically, consi- considered the world considered under the sun apart from God. But once God gets involved, we can see that we are the image of God in a way that, man that a deer is not right well there was a, a a gentleman linnaeus who put man as he he said he is homo sapien and i'm going to put him with the rest of the monkeys mm. right and the um i believe it was the gibbon he accidentally classified as it's one of the races of humans right so you had um this is where our term you know our term negro comes from him our term um Caucasian archer, you know, he, so he said there's, there's uh red man, white man, yellow man, and black man, right? And so he divides them up. And then he also put, and then this other um, one that, <laughs> the, that turned out to be the gibbous monkey, the gibbon monkey or gibbous monkey, gibbon monkey, I think. And uh, because all he'd ever seen was drawings, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't ever seen an Asian. He'd just seen drawings of one. And so he's, tra- and so he puts everybody on this, um, this kind of great chain of being within the animal kingdom. And mankind is over here with the monkeys. That's where you put him. And he said he's a homo, homo sapien, um, thinking, the, the thinking primate. Now, now, this is before. So he said, what sets us apart then is our thinking. That's what defines us. This is this is before we get. Go ahead. So yeah, this is so this is in Kant's day. Oh wow! So this is not. It, so he's Darwin, right? This is not. This is this is this is pre-Darwin, a hundred years before wow. Darwin. Um, Darwin Darwin int- introduces a mechanism by which you can move up and down the chain of biological being. Okay. Um, but before that, they'd already put everybody on it, right? And so Homo sapien, which we, we still use, um, comes from that, right? We think of ourselves that way. Mm. And that's a way of saying we're not the image of God. We're not created to have dominion. We're not the great gardener above it all, which is what God says we are, right? I've tried to come up with what we should call ourselves homo gardenius or something or um you know who who are we fundamentally homo tri imager you know that we image the triune god or something i i I haven't figured it out we're we're adam Uh, Adam, yeah we are (laughs) we are 
Adams and Eves. There there, we that's go. I, I like that. That's that's Lewis. You know, he says we're all Adams and Eves. Yeah. I think that's really good. But the the whole idea being, what are we? What are we? What's our job here? Well, our primary job is to be the representative of God to the world. And when God is setting that up, he gives Adam to the world and says, here is my representative. And he said, now it's not good though, that he's alone, right? Because he can't image the triune God alone. Right. And so he gives him Eve and then together they image the triune God. And part of that is by bringing more, people right the the their children proceed out of them their love is so powerful that new people just pop into existence um and proceed from them right so you've got this temporal within time this image of the eternal god who exists who doesn't exist within time in the same sort of way but that's that's the job of the family is to be the image of God, the image of the triune God. And so the father and the son and the, or the father and the, uh, ma, the mother and the children are all, all equally human. And their ontological humanity is not affected at all by the fact that, that the wife gives the gift of submission to her husband. She comes, she submits, comes under the mission submission comes under the mission of her husband um and and the children then are told to obey their parents right that doesn't threaten their equality at all because they're made in the image of a god who is ontologically equals he exists as three ontologically equal persons and they exist within an economic hierarchy so um, as soon as, but as soon as you lose that and you preference one over the other, then you start getting different kinds of, uh, different, well, different kinds of tyrannies, right? Mm. Uh, where being above is being better, more important, more human. And so you can justify the treatment of those economically under you, um, economically hierarchically under you, you can justify the the mistreatment of them because they're not as human as you, right? They're not as high on the, on the ontological chain of being as you are. I'm with you. I'm just, I, so I had a, <laughs> so you were taking that to Hegel. Yes. So Hegel, um, I, I got a question. If, if you're going to okay, jump there, I'm ready. Okay, oh, man, I feel like we're not going to get to Hegel. <laughs> we're like just 30 <laughs> minutes in, I feel like. So the problem that I think arises, and I was going to write it down so I could say it better, but uh, since it's just me and you, the problem that I think arises when people are hearing this and they're like, I think there's a certain form of them that identifies and naturally innately says, yes, you're right, we can see that structure. That structure is undeniable in nature. It's undeniable in how we function. Even homosexuality still uh, indirectly in their rebellion can't escape those realities. <laughs> right. They right. just, you know, they just can't escape them. Even they try and fight it. It's just built into the system. You have to, you have to flow this way. Right. And so, but the, the thing that I hear 
coming as a retort is, okay, even this is from the good side and the people who are opposed to even this type of structure, uh, but it would still be Christians would, would, would be saying that, but the difference between the Godhead and the family structure is when you have something that goes out of whack and the per- people who are supposed to be in this economic reality uh, abuse or misuse their relationship to the structure so that the ontological realities become challenged by the person who is in a different position of an economic reality, right? So that they abuse or misuse the ontological realities of that indiv- of of that individual who is in a different economic reality. So then how do you then correct a situation like that without destroying those spheres? Because I think that's what that's what a lot of people does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah. And Go ahead. It, it, it is, and you know, every situation is different, and so that you, you got to sort of talk in terms of principles, um, right? Right. You know, and but uh, and there's a couple of things, right? God created multiple institutions that are supposed to reflect the triunity of God, um, and then layered the jurisdictions of mm. those different governments so that they could keep one another in check. Right. So we have, so there's that's good. the, uh, so, you know, if let's say, you know, you've got a situation where a husband doesn't treat his wife as if she's ontologically equal. Right. But is, is, um, you know, oppressive, right. That, um, that wife should feel, 100% free to go to the church when it's their jurisdiction, go to the the mm. government when it's their jurisdiction. Right. And if the husband says, Hey, this is my jurisdiction. Um, Hey, you, you can't, you, you went past me, you went beyond me. Right. That should just be written down as evidence. Right. Look what he said. He obviously doesn't get it. Right. Because he is under jurisdictions. Um, he is under uh, under governments he's not a government unto himself right and so his his lack of willingness or lack of interest in submitting um in his in the spheres in which he is not the head uh should be just recorded as evidence that he's bad at his calling right he is uh the so if if the church comes in and says you know hey brother your wife came and talked to us and, and, and he's immediately defensive. Um, then he's not going to be good at being ahead because he's not submitting to the authority that God has put over him. So, so ultimately to summarize is that the beauty of what we have in this is that the Trinitarian, um, realities of who God is has also placed authority inside of spheres that get to check each other to make sure that they stay so it right. checks and balances they stay in sync yeah. with each other when something falls out right and right. so and that, that makes and, sense and that we need one another now I named both my daughters after women that saved their husbands on purpose mm. right um, so 
the uh, Abigail who uh, saved Nabal by disobeying him. Right. She she submitted to him because when he when he went off mission, right, David comes in and says, hey, we've been protecting you. And um, can we join the festival? And he's like, nope, I'm not feeding you. Um, at that point, he's going off mission in a number of ways, right? He's he's ignoring God's commands about hospitality. He's ignoring the cultural norm of hospitality, right? Um, as well, and he is um, he is refusing to uh, pay a worker his due, right? So he's he's ignoring God's law. He's stealing. He's doing a number of things, right? Not honoring the king um, either. Yeah. Not honoring, not honoring the king. Um, and his wife watches him be a fool, go off mission. And in order to submit to him, she has to ignore and disobey him, right? Cause her job is to submit to his mission, right? Is to come under his mission. When he goes off mission, well, then she should stay on mission, mm. right? It's, she doesn't, need to follow him off mission right at that point she ignores him and um that that's what submission looks like is disobeying the heck out of nabal Mm. and uh and so she goes to david here's and god rewards her righteousness rewards her submission rewards her staying on mission when he goes off by killing him right and if i wrote that screenplay um you would have to set it up such that when that everybody rejoices when Nabal falls down dead, right? Cause that's the reality, right? You've got this bad, you know, um, this bad guy who dies suddenly um, as a clear judgment from God and everybody rejoices and she gets to go off and become queen. Right. But so you, her, she's, she gets a promotion in the story. I think, um, I think and then Zipporah who d- disobeys oh, yeah, yeah. or who, yeah, the Zippo lighter is named after her because it's a Flint lighter and she uses a Flint to Okay. Circumcise. I did not know that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ab- my daughters are Abigail and Zipporah. So it's two women who save their husbands by disobeying, right? That's 100% purpose on purpose that my wife and I, we want strong women that know they were, that their job is to stay on mission. What, what mission has God given them? Well, it's going to be defined partly by who they marry. That's going to be the mission that they come under. And their job is to stay on that mission, whether what, what, what he does one way or the other. Now, hopefully they'd never marry a Nabal. Right. But, <laughs> right. but if they do, they have their namesake to right. keep them in mind, but like it, stay, stay but, every, but everybody, everybody, dude, every dude has a little bit of a Nabal that lives, you know, in the left that's ventricle real. of the heart. You know, so, and praise God, we, for need, a, and we need a wife that's like, that's right. <laughs> so then out of everything you just laid out was basically a Genesis structure, Trinitarian yeah. Genesis reality structure. Where does Hegel come in? Right. So, Hegel, Hegel comes in. Um, so he, he, here's what's so hard about Hegel. To to the end of his life, he was a member in good standing at his Lutheran church, and that's all we need to know, right from, there. That's all we from need everything to know. you can tell. He honestly seemed to honestly believe that he was actually just try. He was trying to be a faithful Christian. And he just was bad at it. Um, really? Because he had, so he had, um, 
the and this is what this is one of the reasons Hegel's so hard because he uses a Christian vocabulary, but he buys into to Kant's metaphysical distinction between an upper world of the noumenal, um, which you cannot, which is a the so you've got religious truth, which is a historical, not not in history, not in science, not in in the real world in the real world, and then a phenomenal um, uh, layer of reality, which is what you can get at with your senses. Um, and so he buys into that and then tries to rebuild a, with a, using a Christian vocabulary and understanding um, of religion. Uh, but he really creates it's he, he basic he's almost a pantheist. Because what he says is that there's this that um, that the in the phenomenal realm, everything is in process. There is there is nothing has a nature in and of itself that is unchangeable or that is given Uh, um, what everything has is if it has a if it has an identity in the moment, it's because of where it is in process. So every so process is the definition of of reality in the phenomenal realm. So he writes the phenomenology phenomenology of mind, uh, the phenomenology, you know, uh, the or the or the phenomena, you know, he writes a phenomenology of of uh, history. Right. And meaning that I'm not dealing with the noumenal realm because you can't observe it, right? Phen- um, phenomenology means uh, that you that you your method of inquiry is only observation, right? So you're not using logic to say here's things we know and here's things that I can know because I know by good and necessary necessary consequence. There's things I can know because of these truths that I have. He says, you can't get to anything that way. You ha- you can only work from observation to uh, truth because we are in the realm of ph- the fiend of phenomena. We're in the, f- so that's the, so he buys into Kant and then ditches the noumenal realm and says, since we can't get to it, it's not of any use. The only thing we can know is from our what we know. And then he kind of creates a mythology um, of process based on self-reflection, where he says, "How well, how do I come to know things? Well, I'll have an idea, and then I come up against a fact that doesn't fit my idea, and they run into each other. And so I've got this thesis, here's my idea, but then I run into its antithesis. Here's the something that doesn't mesh with my idea. And then a new version of the idea that wasn't the thesis, but also wasn't the antithesis, a new version of that idea is this in the synthesis. And then he says, history is the, um, the eternal spirit or the eternal mind or the, the eternal ghost, the, the Holy ghost, but not in the Christian sense, but history is this. Well, that's blasphemous. It is. It is. That's the problem. He's, he's 
he but he writes so convolutedly that nobody really realized it was blasphemy until it was too late for him well right? they were there that's even worse <laughs> oh that's worse thing, trying to trying to read him is so hard because he changes the definition of every word so he so he kind of so you can take a sentence and sometimes you're like well that's kind of what i believe and then you're like oh except for none of the words are being used the way uh, I would use them and that, right? So that, that's that. There's a Gnostic special definition for every word. Um, and so what he does is the, that the, the eternal mind, um, is learning what is the ideal by history. And so history is the working mm. out of the eternal mind, um, that has a particular idea. Maybe the best way to organize society is capitalism. Oh no, there's this antithesis of people that get oppressed. Well, let's p- pull those two things together and the new way of organizing the the world is going to be something else. And so the so then he's and cuz what he says is you what look at history and it is this moving from one stage to another stage, right? We organized ourselves by tribes, but then we evolved to cities and then we evolved to nation states. That is because the spirit, the the spirit of history or the spirit, the ideal, the spirit of the ideals is moving us towards ideals and is learning what the ideal is mm. by this movement of history, right? Okay. So, and so let me ask it, a question so it's a, here. Pr- everything becomes a process moving towards an ideal that is in the future, but it's all separated from metaphysical realities that things actually have. Cause there's so no top tier can change because there's no top tier. Everything can change and be changed and become something new. And if it's, and the new thing is always better because that is what's been revealed over time. Right. So, this is this seems like a couple things going on here. It seems like a very perverted post millennialism. It is. Right. So this is why when we when we talk about the uh the progressives taking the optimism, right? Hegel creates the progressive movement. And you can see even why they call themselves the progressive movement, right? Okay. Right? Because they're progress progressing through history to something better. He creates the progressive movement. The all of the progressive theologians, Fire Freuerbach and um all the German progressive theologians are in the next generation, they're Hegelians. Right. So okay. progressive theology, what we what comes to be called liberal theology in America is they all went to German seminaries they studied under hegel they studied hegelianism right in german seminaries and came back machen talks about this where it's like in christianity and liberalism right he says we all went to german seminary together and this is what was being taught and we're bringing it back but it's a different religion with the same words it's a hegelian religion and he, so it's a diff, so they take this progressive optimism. They're incredibly optimistic about where this is all heading and they separate it from the creator God and say, and, and they, and so there is nobody that just takes Hegel straight. Every single one of them takes Hegel's progressive optimism and gives it, gives, cause he never gives it a mechanism, right? What's the mechanism? Well, con, uh, 
conflicting opposites is the mechanism. There's no actual mechanism. Marx takes, takes it. So Feuerbach takes it first and he gives us naturalism. Naturalism is this progress through material means only. Marx takes it and he gives us material. Uh, uh, material materialism in it, but it's economic materialism, right? Right, right. So, uh, so, it, so this is so I've been trying to organize this all because it's it's a little complex with that homo, you know, Homo sapien is the one way you describe it. Well, Marx gives us Homo economicus, right? Homo uh, that what is it that mankind is defined as? Is an economic creature, right? So Aristotle gave us. Uh, political man, but Marx gives us economic man. Economics is the, the what defines who we are, defines our nature. Um, but he takes the he is just giving a natural mechanism to Hegel's idea of uh, of the process of history. Right? Hegel just doesn't give us a mechanism. I mean, the uh, the mechanism is some sort of weird. Um, it's it's just that 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 the eternal spirit haunts. But Hegel history. Hegel does. I mean, give he us- actually uses the word ghost in German, uh, but we don't translate it as ghost. But I I think we should. So, but be, well, yeah. But Hegel does give us at the end of the day. He gives us. Uh, he replaces almost the trinitarian reality that we live in. Removes God from the situation and then creates. Um, what, what Romans talks about where you worship the creation rather mm-hmm. than the creator and then everybody else. So you draw this circle around Hegel and then you just start getting these branch offs right from Hegel. All, they're all, you've got spokes, right? That they're the coronavirus the of modernity. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it is kind of an infection. That's yeah. Sure. They're spiking so. to, yeah. And, and it, and so I got to go back to this cause I want to really understand this. So, Hegel then gives us a reality where the world itself, uh, maybe I'm saying this wrong, but correct me if I am, where the world itself is creating this snowball of, um, of truth as it goes throughout history, right? Yeah, right. It's a snow, it's a snowball of, I, of the, of what is the ideal way of of life existing Existing. yeah yeah so 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 the ideal being so we come into this as we begin to go and work throughout history right and so this is really interesting because there's there's this this is a complete rebellion against the way that god has made the world in two senses i got this from rush dooney um and rush dooney man he was so all over this when he talks about Mm -hmm. the uh, the maturity of an individual so we think and we have this mindset where we'll think about man in that same way as coming into something. But when God made Adam, he made him a full mature man. He was fully mature. Right. He was fully man, right? He was, he was, th- that's what he was. He was altogether what he was, right? And, and so what he did was he, ma- he matured in what he already was, right? So that his wisdom and that understanding that he got, it wasn't something that he had to run up into becoming this man, right? It was, he wasn't running up to become this thing. Yeah. He was that thing. He, re- he matured into his, into the identity of the, what he, he was already, already had as a gift. So with Hegel though, we yeah. don't have that identity yet, right? We don't have that identity. It is still in motion. Right. 
whatever is become. And so, so then when you get marks, so they always, so they start talking about the next phase that humanity is human- evolving into. Right. So that becomes the conversation oh. The what's, so what's interesting is Marx gives it an economic twist and um, Darwin gives it a biological twist, right? So you've got, they, they, come, right. they come up with different ways, different means, different mechanisms by which we move into the next phase where we evolve into the next phase, right? But the, they all agreed on the evolution, right? This is why I always tell people that Darwin is the symptom, not the disease, Right. Darwin is not the disease. The The disease is the metaphysic that thinks you can actually become something that you're not. Right. Which is the promise that the devil gives in the garden. Right. The promise is evolution. He's not giving him the, the promise is not Darwinian evolution. It's eat of the fruit and you will become like God. Right. He's promised. So he the devil is brings a process metaphysic and he says here's the this fruit is the mechanism by which the process metaphysic can move you into the next phase of so your been, human evolution so when we talk about hegelian um and we because we, i've been trying to read and understand hegel that thing I, my head just hurts more part of it is that he was really smart like he was brilliant i, I mean absolutely to brilliant. his own hurt right yeah. but Watching the progressives move now, they make a little more sense to me because they have a Hegelian reality or foundation. So they are waiting. This takes me back to what you were telling me with World War One, when I was going back reading Paul Johnson, is it, in his book, uh, Modernity? Or yeah. Modern. Modernity. Yeah. Um, uh, modern Times. Modern Times, yeah. And one of the things that I didn't know until reading him was that in World War, before World War One, everybody felt like something was coming anyway. But they believe, and this is probably a Hegelian reality, they believe that the war or whatever was coming or the destruction or the world war coming into this fusion would somehow birth something out of it that was a new reality because of death, ultimately. Like, right. <laughs> because it of the, the, it, it was the war to end all wars. Right. right. That's so that's what they called it. The war they, to end they, all wars. Yeah, they believed that this was the war to end all wars. If we could just get the whole world at war, then we will finally have world peace, right? which sounds insane unless you have already assumed a Hegelian metaphysic, right? And once you've assumed a process metaphysic, right, he, he rejected creation ex nihilo and said, no, everything is all, is all process, right? There's not a beginning um, and the the because a beginning require a beginning implies um ontological an ontological reality that he rejected right and so instead he says everything is process and the way forward is always conflict right you've got that because he said it's it's i mean he was he was one of those guys that his students would come in to ask him a question and they would step in and he wouldn't notice that somebody had come into the room or that's what they thought. Then they, then he would acknowledge them. He'd ask a question. Then he'd sit for multiple minutes, just looking off into the distance, right? He was so much up in his head. He was so self 
uh, self-aware that it's almost like he projected the way that he thought through issues onto reality, right? Which is what Kant argued, right? Remember, if you remember, Kant argued that the subject defines reality by putting cause and effect onto it by, by, you know, that, and Hegel was like, okay, well, if that's the case, then the way that I think through to find truth is actually the process of history. And so I think I know something and then I come into conflict with a new idea that conflict causes you know, a, a chaos for a, for a time until I can figure out how the two things can be brought together into unity, into a new unity, a new peace. And so everybody said, oh, okay, well, so if that is the case, then what we need is conflict because we'll get a new unity, we'll get a new peace, we'll get something greater out of the conflict. It's a, it's a secular death and resurrection, Mm. It's a secu- it's a it's a belief in resurrection without belief in a resurrecting God. Um, re- so wh- how is it that Jesus came out of the tomb? It's not that re- dead things resurrect. It's that the spirit of God is the spirit of resurrection and the father by the power of the spirit. It's a personal act to raise Jesus from the dead. The father, by the power of the spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, right? At the beginning of Romans. Well, it's it, a personal act. It's not an impersonal act, but right. he, uh, Hegelianism turns it all into uh, a, a personal act where new life proceeds out of death by a, um, because it has to, right? Because this, there's a there is a an impersonal ex nihilo, <laughs> but <laughs> right. it even well, it, it even goes back further than that though, Jason. Because inside of Christ, the problem that Hegel had between the two tiers it's solved because the yeah, hypostatic right. union bridges that gap so that heaven and earth are connected now. They touch in Christ, in Christ, and only in Christ, yeah. right. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth come together so that eventually heaven and earth can come together. Right. He, you know, um, mm. he stretched by on the cross, he stretched his arms from heaven to earth and began pulling them towards one another. Mm. Right? So, um, and, it, and by faith, we look at that day when heaven and earth are going to come together in the future. And we bring heaven into the present by faith, by the way we treat one another, by by the way we act out the life of the triune God in relationship to one another. Right. So, because that's the reality, um, but uh, only in Christ. Right. Yeah. Cause that, cause that, that is the reality. So instead of saying, I wonder what it's going to be like someday, we're told, well, look at the life of the father, son, and the spirit. Everything is going to be that someday. Every relationship is going to reflect that someday. And so we bring that into the we bring that into the present by faith, um, and we know that by the law and the testimonies, right? We know that because God has given us a description of His life in the law. He has incarnated the law in Christ. He's given us the testimonies of how He has acted throughout history, right? And so we, so in Christ, the 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 past and the history the you know our ontology and our economy hold together mm. the past and the future hold together the uh, heaven and earth hold together he is the the 
Jesus is the integration point of all things. And that is through him, to him, from him, through him, him, to him, for him, right. In him, we live and move and have our being like all of those things are solved by looking at Jesus. Right. So, Jesus is the full revelation of the triune God. You know, right? if, that's how we solve these problems. And Hegel's like, well, I think I can solve them on my own. Uh, Let yeah, me look up in my own head. So, you know, th- all of a sudden, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right. Yeah, that has that has meaning. That has content. It has. <laughs> and I think that we've understood that. And, so, and I don't I don't want to discredit um, our theological vision. But I think that, Jason, we've forgotten that our theological vision is not something that's supposed to be separated or disconnected from reality. So when we think about theology, naturally we think of a knowledge in one sense or another that is supernatural, like what you were getting on me about, right? (laughs) A while ago, a couple of shows ago, that is not connected to, to tangible realities. So that when we hear things like, all authority on heaven and in heaven and earth has been given to me. We don't understand the connection that's actually being made in real time, time and space right now here on earth so that we end up still thinking. Um, well, it's even funny to watch. I think people's eschatology has a Hegelian reality to it um, just because they're waiting for something to take place that isn't in uh the realities of what Christ has actually done on the cross. Right. So <laughs> but for them, right. they're still waiting for this other type of rebirth of some sort of form of, I don't want to say paganism. Um, what would you call it? Um, secular, hum- secular humanistic realities, right. To still yeah. come forth that it doesn't acknowledge all authority in heaven and on earth, <laughs> you know, that ties the, 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 that ties the, the, the rest- restoration of Genesis to the current time that we're in right now and moving forward that way because of Christ, you know? And so, right. Yeah. And so, and, and then what ends up happening and we is when we go to say, okay, so God has told me that I ought to love my neighbor, ought to uh, mm. love my kids, right? That um, we don't know where to go to get the content of the love, right? We don't, right? Because we have, we have separated, because we are separated from, the we're separated from the cosmos or the cosmological gospel, right? If, if the good news affects all of the cosmos and we as people fit right in to this cosmos, then that good news goes, affects everything about us, right? If we are microcosms of the universe, and Jesus saved the universe, then everything about our universe then, and everything about who we are then is touched and affected, but not in a, we, we don't have to, we don't have to wait for the 
revolution within our soul <laughs> to happen again, right? We don't have to wait around to feel so to feel too guilty to and then have to stop or right. The story because the story that we tell about ourselves um, is going to be the same as whatever story we tell about the cosmos because we are we are beings that fit perfectly into this universe that we we have um and we are microcosms of it uh, i don't I think, know so, if that's even making no yeah i know what you're saying but i know how all my people who are dispensationalists know, are taking I it <laughs> i know exactly how this is gonna go he said he saved so, jesus saved the cosmos oh my goodness he's a right. heretic <laughs> yes but it so um like so here's a good example right when you say when you say to them okay i'm i uh, i'm supposed to love my kids right what and then you say well, what does that look like right he's like yeah of course you're supposed to love your kids but what does it look like where do we go for answers everybody right. would say the bible right Is it, yeah the bible right of course right and the bible gives us the content right yeah um i if I said, well, hey, let's look at the baptism of Jesus to learn how to talk to our kids, people say, what? Why would we do that? Right? Uh, um, grammatical historical context does not allow right, for that, right, so you're done. Right. Exactly. Right? Except for um, – now, let me, let me turn to uh, – I think you might have some that would say, yeah, you know, this is my son and who yeah, I'm can, well pleased. I can see that, but I, they, they would, you know, they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. That makes sense. The white, but it should be the first place we go to because that's, we, we see the father, God the father speaking to the son. Why are we fathers at all? Well, because we're made in the image of a God who is a father, who is a father who has a son, right? It, um, Paul tells us we are, we are called fathers because he was one, mm-hmm. right? We, we are created in that image. And so when he says, and so, but then we would say, so when was the last time you went to your son? And you're like, you know what? It just pleases me to be your father. Being your father just makes me mm-hmm. joyous. Mm-hmm. Like I, what, do we do we joy over our children? Do we do we sing over them and just say, "I get to be your dad"? It's right, the best right. thing, in, right? That's what the father does. He is. I, I I am well pleased to be your father, right? We don't it, unless we're living that way. We're not living out of a trinitarian understanding of fatherhood, right? And and too many of us had or are distant fathers um unemotional fathers right we we think well what's our job to provide and right and that's true but do we just pick up our kids and hold them because i get to be a dad to this kid yeah right right, right. what a what a blessing that is right i mean how many uh, uh there's a a really great i i love uh comedians and cars getting coffee right uh Jerry Seinfeld. I, I'm a comedy writer, and so I watch a lot of comedy stuff. And and uh, uh, Ray, uh, oh, what the guy that uh, everybody loves, Raymond. Yeah, the guy that um, Ray. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he, he said, he said, you know, I know a lot of comedians. I don't do good voices, so I'll just tell you what he said. I know a lot of comedians. We all 
and uh, we we all have terrible fathers. And he said, if fathers just, you know, he said most of us, one hug from our dad would have made us into a different. Mm. We would have had a different career path. <laughs> it's like, why are we comedians? Because our dad didn't hug us enough, right? Wow. <laughs> it's like we're we're compensating, right? All that laughter is us just trying to fill the void that a hug father from hunger. our dad yeah, would it's have. Father right? It's all father hunger, right? And I, you can have like there are some. I'm sure there are some great comedians that have great dads, but he is. Uh, he is totally on to something, right? That dads, a, a dad's role is uh, w- one of the central parts of it is rejoice, rejoice over your children, right? Re- that, um, and that's a Trinitarian that, that because, because we're Trinitarians, right? We should be, grabbing our kids, rejoicing over them, loving them, and just, you know, stopping our sons and saying, you know what, little little bro, little bro in Christ, I love being your dad. It's so great. Right? I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm going to take a step. I don't know if many Baptists can say that little bro in Christ, so just keep it a little bro. So. <laughs> Little, little pagan, bro, little, ontologically, little ontological bro, little ontological bro, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and but but that's a that's a trinitarian metaphysic. That's mm. an embracing of who I am, who they are, what kind of relationship we have, what 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 is the the economic? Well, that's a, that's the economics of reality, right? Um, embracing it, uh, and you've got something similar in marriage. You know, when Paul in First Corinthians. He says, be followers of me, even as I am a follower of Christ. Um, And he says, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Right. So he says, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? He says, the head of uh, the head of every man is Christ. Right. So Jesus is a head. Right. And um, the and the head of the woman is the man. Right. So a husband is a head. Jesus is a head. The husband is a head. So the husband can look at is supposed to look at Jesus to learn how to be a good husband, how to be a good head, how to be a good covenant head. Um, And then the the and then he says, and the head of Christ is God. Right. So Jesus is a covenant subject in his relationship with the father, he's a covenant head in his relationship with mankind, right? So the husband as a covenant head, he says, be followers of me as I am of Christ. He follows Christ to be a good husband, to be a good covenant head. And then a wife, who does she look at to be a good subject in a covenant? Well, she looks at Jesus who is the subject of the father in the, in that, right. In that covenant. Mm, So, mm. Jesus is who we who we look at no matter where we are in the relationship. How does a kid be um, know how to be a good kid in a Christian family? Well, he looks at Jesus because Jesus was raised by Jesus was a kid. He was raised by Mary and Joseph. We always, always, always look at Jesus because Jesus is the full revelation of God, right? And God is always who we're imitating because our job is to image God to the world. And, um, and, and that, so, so when you, so, you so when you, when you miss out on 
the hypostatic union of who Jesus is, what you end up getting then is a completely um, impersonal metaphysic that just acts. Right, that, that acts and hopes that someday we become what we're supposed to be. So then you don't get, so if I'm thinking, of, if I'm understanding this correctly, what you don't get is you don't get the division of, of man and woman. You don't get spheres. Right. You don't get, you don't, right? This is just, so then this is, in one sense or another, this thing. Be, because all submission is is an ontological insult. Right. All submission becomes an insult, right? Well, that so doesn't when, even exist, when, actually. It doesn't even exist. Yeah. So when Hegel's talks about in, in his um, uh, phenomenology of right, right, his philosophy of right and wrong, it's the the master-slave relationship. He says every – he says that is the basic relationship in society because every submission – is a master slave relationship. And so, right. And, mm. and, and so you've got the conservatives that come out of that, uh, out of, so, uh, so you sometimes hear people say like, well, Nazi, the Nazis are the right wingers, right. The, and the fascists were the right wing and yeah, the yeah. Yeah, commies were the left wing. Right. And you think that, right. That's crazy. They were all socialists. They're all left right, wing. Right. Well, Hegel has this there, there's this split between the hegelians into do two different kinds of revolutionaries they agree that there is people that that people above are better and people below are less that there's a that there's a division between more human and less human right and the communists say so everybody either needs to um that through revolution we're going to all we're going to equalize everyone and everybody that won't come along and and accept this reality won't what become what Marx calls socialist man right if they won't evolve with us up the chain of being to socialist man then we have to kill them we have to get rid of them right um, and then we will only have because then we will only have equality right. And so you've got that on the one side. Well, the other Hegelians say, well, actually, there's an economic difference for a reason. And so you can have some people that are at the top and some people that are at the bottom because some people are better than others. Some people are more human than others. Mm. Right? And so we don't have to have equality because people aren't equal. Right. So um, mm. and that becomes the left wing and the right wing of the revolutionaries post Hegel. Right. So they are right wing for Hegelians, but the true, you know, the conservatives all said, well, no, we don't want Hegel. Some of them did. There were some Hegelian conservatives in England that, um, that embraced uh, Hegel as a way of holding on to what they thought of as conservative values. But, um, because their traditions were bumped at the beginning, <laughs> uh, as Christian. Because right, yeah, right. But as Christians, we say, well, no, the assumptions are all wrong. There isn't any moving up and down the chain of being. Submission is not a, a an ontology. Isn't doesn't affect our ontology. God sometimes puts some people in charge, and other times he puts other people in charge, and none of that affects our humanity. And so every person should be treated 
um, with with dignity because uh, of their ontological uh, because of who they are ontologically, right? So we reject the whole assumption that economic and ontological categories are transferable between one another or they, they affect one another. So Jason, this is funny as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the radical side of the progressive movement, uh, radical side of some of the stuff I've seen with the social justice movement. What they start getting into is when they start looking at white people, what they're doing is they have a Hegelian view of it where they start saying that the, um, the ontological realities of white people, um, aren't, they are less than human. I, I don't know if you've seen some of those clips where some, social ju- some of the social justice folks are saying, hey, these people, mm-hmm. white folks, aren't human. They have – I've even seen them talk about um, the DNA things that they're doing. It's like less melanin in your skin makes you less human. Uh, it, yep. It's just – it's absolutely crazy. But what they're doing is they're denying um, – and I don't know how the, I don't know how exactly to say this, but they're denying the ontological realities because of the economic relation that they've had. So because of your economic, uh, relation with the black person because of slavery, therefore your, your ontological realities are broken. Right. So right. The, then there, is that the way, is that the right way to say that? So that. Yeah. Yeah. You're on, or your ontological, you, you have moved yourself lower ontologically down the chain of being. You're less human. Um, or even maybe not human anymore, right? The, the, they're right, and, right. And yep. what's crazy, I just finished a really, really good book. Um, Don't One you Nation say Nation Under Curse. Oh, there you go. Doggone it. One Nation Under so, Curse. One Nation Under Curse. And it's uh, a biography of one of the um, Grand Dragons of the KKK in the 50s, 60s. Um, and then he gets converted, saved, and kind of he ends up becoming you know Christian, and then, and then eventually a pastor, and and he he just explains why it why it seemed like a good idea to join the KKK when he was a teenager. What is it that they promised him? Um, and uh, you know the the in the fifties the the Ku Klux Klan's. Um, they would they handed out cards that said be a man join the clan right mm. so um he he was you know what he he basically he was beat up a lot he was picked on and he always felt like he didn't have any power and they were offering him an identity that came with power and then he got in there and he just explains all of the the propaganda that they use and he said he said, I literally sat around and made up statistics about Jews and black people to prove to prove that they were less human than white people. It's like, and we were just making up statistics. We'd throw around numbers in the back room and write these things. So, um, but he, he's, he said, we, we had, we knew that to treat Jews and black people the way we wanted to, we had to show that they were less human, right? And so we did that with science, right? He said, now our science was all made up. Um, but Come that I, is the yeah. way. <laughs> that, that is the way, Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, you see, and you see people doing that. Like you see, like you're talking about, well, the melanin in the skin is somehow um, a marker of 
of humanity evolution yeah, yeah, yeah. right you're more evolved and you're you're more human right um you but you see that so that's phenomenology that is we can't look at the essence of them so we have to look at the phenomena well, what is the phenomena the things that we can see about a person well part of the, the phenomena, phenomena now and that's how we make the the distinctions part of the phenomena now is historical in the sense that mm-hmm. Hey, how did white people treat black people, you know, even a hundred years ago and even before that or during this whole time of slavery? And so because of that, the humanity of a white person can't exist anymore. Right. Because the the white people have dehumanized themselves. Right. By treating others this way. And that justifies us no longer treating them as humans. Right. Which is what dehumanized them. So I don't know why that would end up being a good idea for you, but that's the, you know, you know, something that something has been in all of it. Something has been the cure. Sorry, Jason. Something has been the cure for me. in this has been going back. You have to have a robust understanding of scripture to be able to deal with some of this stuff, because I think there's a part of us that are so saturated in that worldview that we want to say, this is why our abortion ministry sucks sometimes because we see people do very wicked things to these children and we think the humanity of that person ontologically has changed. And so we right. want to have a certain type of conversation with that person, right? And we want to remove, you know, we, we, I've seen it where we act like we're not and then I see us do it at the same time. I'm like, ah. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that has anchored me with this has been remembering the children of Israel in Egypt when the death angel came, they had to have blood over their doorposts or they were in the Just same like ex- everyone else and yeah. they were the slaves. So they were the ones who were getting mistreated by Egypt. And yet if they had no blood, they would be dead, too. Right. right. <laughs> and so when you understand that, then all of a sudden your ontological realities are yoked together with Egyptians. <laughs> Like, you're like, yeah, the only thing that's different right now is the fact that you have a blood atonement for you and they don't. But that is it. Your ontological realities are shared. When that angel come around, it don't matter. Circumcision or no, you, right. you don't have the blood of Christ over you. If you don't have that blood sacrifice over the door, you're done, baby. And so. Right. And, and so, but that's where, you know, where the gospel in this situation is so essential because it is saying something still. It is pointing to the ontological realities of an individual, regardless of their economical acts towards others or their economical standings towards others, right? Or themselves. And so that it doesn't allow that person's ontological realities to change because if it does, then the gospel itself doesn't do what, what is this? It, you know, what is it? How does yeah. it? And that's where the social justice movement gets rid of the gospel because, well, you, there's no hope for you. And you're not and human. I, and and I think for and what what we've done is we think that convert becoming a Christian changes the kind of being we are rather than changing the economic relationship that we have with God. It actually changes the kind of being we are because we have bought into these Gnostic assumptions, which is why, you know, you, you see some great piece of art. And then you find out that the person wasn't a Christian and we think, well, how did they do that? Or you get, see somebody get something right and you're like, well, they're not even a Christian. How did they, how, how are they doing that as if 
becoming a Christian was makes us into a different kind of ontological being rather than restores us economically in our relationship Mm. to God, to one another and to the world. Right. And so we have even brought in Gnostic assumptions to our understanding of conversion. Um, And, and then we don't know how to preach the gospel because of it. And so we don't, yeah, we don't think we can, we don't think we're going to be able, people are going to be able to, Right here and understand right because we made people orcs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because we think we're that that you've got orcs and Christians, um, and, and so, so we don't yeah. treat them with respect. We don't treat people uh, with kindness, and we and we feel like well, they're not a Christian. I don't have to. Well, and I think it, what it does too, Jason, is it makes the reason that we have such a hard time or a fear of sharing the gospel. I think. It, it, some of it would be like, oh, we're afraid to talk to people. I don't believe that. I think that people will talk to people about yeah. anything. If you like sports, if somebody likes sports, they will talk to you about sports, not know you. I've seen people in a stadium hug each other because somebody took a right. ball right. and crossed it across a line <laughs> or put a ball in yeah. a hoop and they don't know each other. So I just don't buy the fact that people yeah. are afraid I to love talk. live sports for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I exactly. I mean, it drives my wife nuts because I'm like, I would run up and down the aisles, high-fiving everybody. Hey, and she's like, what are everybody, you doing? Everybody loves she's it. like, I don't want anybody to notice me. I'm like, I don't care. We're on the same team. Exactly. <laughs> and so the, I think what is the real problem is, is that we have, Assume something about the other person that is not true. As right. if, you know what I mean? We've assumed that there's the humanity of that person isn't there, right? Like <laughs> we just. And even, I think, assume something about ourselves mm, too. Mm. Like we've assumed that we actually moved up the chain of oh, being, ch- right? And so there's, there's a pride in there. And you see this sometimes, you know, young, young Christians. I see this in, I'm a, I'm a screenwriter, comedy writer, right? Well, so there are people doing that craft that are not Christians that are better at the craft than I am. And so I have things to learn from them. Right. Be, be, and it's not because it's not a worldview because having a different worldview doesn't make me into a different sort of creature. So I have to go learn the craft from people that are better at it the same way I would with plumbing the same way. Right. You don't say, well, is my plumber a Christian or not? You say, well, is my is my plumber going to make the thing flush mm. that it won't flush? Right? It's a craft. There are um, you see young Christians that go into business that won't read non Christian business books as if they're not entering into a craft, the craft of business, um, and need to learn from people that are good at the craft of business, thinking that non Christians can't be that we've got secret knowledge that they don't have. And that's going to make us somehow better at our craft. That's, that is an, that's not a Christian way of approaching the world. It's not a Christian way of approaching our non-Christian neighbors, right? We, we, every time you meet a human, it's an opportunity to learn something about yourself and about God and about reality. And right. Cause it's, you're running into somebody made in the image of God. Now, even if their economic relationship with the father is broken, they are still ontologically the image of God. And here you've got, and so you have something to learn from them. You have uh, the, the Christ, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, puts it that Christ, Christ plays in 10,000 places, right? Everywhere you go, 
you're, Jesus is playing there. Right. And so you've got an opportunity to, to run into him face to face in, in the face of every human. You know, I don't we gotta think talk, we got to talk to our manly Hopkins at some point. Yeah. I put that on our list of things that we got to talk about. So I want to, I kind of want to wrap up maybe with what you just said is really interesting. We have to talk about that a little more because I, I don't try to figure out how to say this right. Um, there are, I don't think that Christians have been taught to think about that that way because we've separated ourselves from the world so much mm-hmm. that we've allowed the world to have the status quo secularism instead of saying, no, no, yeah. this is God's world. It's made a particular way. And the only reason that you understand this is because God has designed you a particular way that this is something that you as a man do by the very nature <laughs> of the design that God has put in the world. So of course you're going to be amazing at these things. You're designed that way. And the right. reason it doesn't make sense to you yet is because your economic realities, <laughs> right, have, haven't come into, um, haven't come into relationship yet with the one who made the world. And so let me help you with that, right? There's, so we don't right. think about it that way. I think we've thought about it as there's a world over here and there's a world over there and those two worlds, you know, they don't, they don't really meet. They don't really meet. And so we'll let this world die and burn and go to hell, right? And 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 right. without reality, without realizing that this is the world that Christ came into. This is the world that Christ died for, and this is the world that is being redeemed and being restored better than the garden. And so those realities, once you start understanding that, then you start thinking a lot different about everything. You think a lot different about the news. You think a lot different about work. You think different about filmmaking. You think different about everything in the world. And then you start saying, I know how the world is made. Let me then go and give myself to it right? <laughs> for right, for God's right. glory. And so, but I want to get, I want to, you know... I, part, part of my question in this is because with Hegel, the only, when you said earlier that Hegel connects to progressivism or to progressives, it makes sense now because they don't have, um, you know, the way that they're moving, they don't have a particular destination. They just got to see how it goes, which I start seeing yeah. the World Economic Forum all of a sudden. They're trying to birth something. Um, and create this whole world and you got progressives that are trying to move to this renewable energy and you and not just that but they want a whole new world they want to obliterate um both of them both what you see in progressives and the world economic forum and globalism they want to obliterate uh distinctions and boundaries because they think whatever's going to come from this is this new being way of being that we need to get to. And if we don't do this, we don't ever get there to growth, right? We don't ever progress to our next stage of humanity. How, how do we identify, um, kind of Hegel in, in, in the world? You know, how, how do we know when we're working with somebody? So the progressives was one way to see it, right? When we see this, I think everybody sees the new world order and the world economic forum and what they're doing and Les Schwab and, uh, we don't like progressives, but we don't know, um, we don't really know what we're dealing with or how to identify it. So kind of how do we identify it? Cause this is how we ended last time. How do we deal with globalism? How do we deal with Hegel? And I guess two things. How do we identify it so that we're, we can understand what it is? And then how do we deal with it? 
how do yeah. I deal I mean, with I it? I think, <laughs> right. Well, I think one of the ways you identify things is who do, who do people say thank you to, right? So if, if people are like, well, that's just, you know, things, if things get better in the world and they say, Hey, yeah, that progress is the way of the world, man. Things mm. are going to progress. Um, then you're dealing with Hegelian, a Hegelian understanding, right? That progress is inevitable, right? Um, so gay, right? So somebody reality, says, "Hey, we got gay rights, and gay folks can marry. We are progressing where we we're should progressing, be." Progressing, right? We're how do you, and how do we? So I mean, I remember. So you know, I was in um, the. When I was in high school, before I became a Christian, um, I was a and in junior high, I was part of the uh, multicultural student unions, which um, I think now would probably be like the Gay Straight Alliance, or you know, the, uh, um, and and I remember you know sitting around and talking about okay, we're what once we want you know we're eighth graders, right? So well, once we solve the problem of racism in the world, what should we move to next? Well, and, and having it explained, well, the gay rights are the, are the next civil rights. Right. Um, and so I honestly believed that, right. I refused to, they, they used to split us up into guys and girls lines and I refused to stand in the guys lines because gender was a social con- construct. Right. And so they got rid of guys and girls lines <laughs> rather than, Rather than try and force me to quit standing in the girls' line, they got rid of boys' and girls' lines and just started having lines. Um, so I'm sorry, just that's that was my fault. Um, <laughs> but that was well, doing the same thing with bathrooms right now too, right? Right. Yeah. Now, now, but I, but I fully believed. So when I when I became a Christian, it, as I was the the guy that was doing my baptismal. Um, class, he, uh, I mentioned something about gay rights, and he's like, "Well, do you know what the Bible says about that?" I was like, "Oh, the Bible talks about it." No, I don't. And he's like, "Well, here, let me give you the verses. Go read them, and then let's talk about it." Right. So he just laid out, "Here's what the Bible says about homosexuality." Right. And so I went home and I read the verses he gave me, and then came back and I was like, "Yeah, I didn't. I guess I I have to change my." take right i don't i i don't believe that anymore because it's because the bible tells me right i'm a new christian i'm learning the authority i've learned the authority of the scriptures and loved the i mean i loved the authority of the scriptures it was a it was such freedom i was such a um i was a philosophical meanderer uh, I had bounced from idea to idea. I'd spent some time as a communist, as a Freudian, as an existentialist. Just uh, And so the authority of the scripture was such good news, right? The law of God was an ordering principle that finally I could just have uh, boundaries, right? And it was such a blessing. <laughs> and then one of the things that I thoroughly believed and had put on, put myself on the line for, I bumped up against and was like, dang it. I was wrong about that. Right. And so learn gay rights are, um, are that, that I had just thought progressing was good. Right. 
it didn't matter from to none of that, right? right. Just moving, changing, progressing. You know, I, um, I remember, uh, Marx's doctrine of uh, perpetual revolution and just being like, yep, that's what we do. Right. So punk rock kid, it was like, whoever is the, the man, that's who we are opposed to. Right. It didn't matter who it was, the authority, whoever was the authority you opposed, because that's how society moved forward. That's how society evolved. Right? And so um, the, that, uh, w- and so if if you say thank you to whoever it was that caused the chaos, right? Then you're dealing with Hegel. So that's why the Black Lives Matter thing mm. is so important. Why is it that we can't say what you're doing is bad or wrong? Well, it's because new life is birthed out of chaos. Mm. So we actually have to say thank you to the Black Lives Matter Riots. mobs yeah. who are burning down Target. Right. I remember watching um, the, the, those riots in Target. They're setting it on fire and, and thinking and people just saying, like, good for them. They're like, what? I want to know who dropped off the pallets of bricks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Why are there giant pallets of bricks yeah. out in front of the Target? Oh, you're right? sending me text but, messages but, like, who did that? Yeah. Right. And you, you just, but, but the, the, if, you, if you look at it and you have to say thank you, for that, then it's because you're dealing with a Hegelian um, universe. If you can't condemn it, the what the the agent of chaos, but have to say thank you to it, then you're dealing with a Hegelian religion. Really, I mean, it, what it comes to. So, um, well, and, and Hegel doesn't stay by himself. Like Hegel is attached to so much more than just that one thing, yeah. right? He he is right. he comes with a legion, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, I, that's a that's a good way to describe it because nobody says I'm doing this because of Hegel, right? right? But people say Dewey, Marx, that's right. Um, you know, uh, Feuerbach, who was was really popular for a while, just the the, the birth of the naturalism, um, uh, the humanist secular humanism. Kant, but those guys were Hegelians. Um, well, Kant, Kant was before. Yeah, I'm just but, saying that Kant is influencing yeah, Hegel through his. What right, he's Kant thinking. is right. So you've got this. So all, you've got all of these people who take Hegel's mythology, and then they they run with it and give it different um, different mechanisms: economics, mm. biology, um, learning. Right, Dewey, uh, who creates the public school system. It's because we've got to evolve beyond religion, right? And how do we do it? Well, the savior is the educator, right? The that's who you say thank you to. Mm. Yeah. So that's who you say thank you to. So that's how you. Okay. um, So before you move into how we deal with it, I want to know, do you see strong forms of Hegel in the church? uh, I, I do. And in kind of some of the broad swath movements, I, I think there's a, this, um, there's definitely that this, there's a Hegelian description of the Reformation that I see a lot that I, that always makes me a little uncomfortable. Actually, it makes just make, I, I'm just like, oh, the, your, your view of the Reformation is that it was all about getting the right ideas and, um, you know, mm. first reformation, second reformation. And, you know, um, that, that we've now moved beyond the need for 
architecture. We've because now we've gotten the ideas right. We've moved beyond the need for liturgy. We've moved beyond the need for sacraments. I mean, you hear people say that. Yeah, uh, well, and you see it too. Well, you see it instead of the yeah. mega churches, and even not just in that, but in this last year, where. Well, in the last two years where communion and those sacraments were like, yeah, yeah, yeah we can do without, right? We can, right. Um, because it's all about the, the, uh, the evolution of ideas. Um, and what's so hard is because Hegel based his metaphysic on the way people learn, there's some truth to it, right? He's, he's observing the way we learn and the way our ideas mature. The, the problem is we're not only ideas, right? And for Hegel was an idealist, meaning everything is idea. Every you know, um, that ideas are the things that are real. Um, he's just got a weird take on it that we are the ideas of the eternal ghost who's pushing history forward, right? But um, we have a way of of taking everything down to its theological idea and saying, that's the point. Um, there's a, one of the things mm. that is interesting, I think in Hegel is he talks about, um, he separate separates out concept, symbol and narrative, right? And he, and he says, symbol is the way religion works. Um, but concept is the way philosophy works. And it's, and that is truth, Right we get to truth through concept religion functioned functions in symbol, but we've, we're maturing beyond religion into philosophy and getting to the concept itself. Whereas before we weren't mature enough, so we could only get to the concept through symbol um, and narrative is what came before that. Right. So you've got myth is, you know, you've got ancients dealt in myth, um, then we move to religion, which deals in symbol. And now we've moved to concept, which is the theological nut or that is the real deal, right? We've finally gotten past the shell of symbol. You know, it's um, funny that when you say that, I, I know what he's saying there, but what he's doing ultimately is getting rid of beauty from the world. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and yeah. the same thing I see inside a lot of people's exegesis where they forget typography, which would be poetry, so that they lack to hold multiple things up and see them at the exact same time, where that's what poetry does, right? It brings right. up, you can be talking about one thing while it's pointing to something else in the reality, and then it, it, and then another thing at the same time and holding all of those things together so that you can see how vast and beautiful or how inconsistent you are to be able to see it just in normal conversations that are what people call the nuts, you know, I get you could call right, them. Nuts. Right. And, and that's why I see in yeah. a lot of people's exegesis too, where they're because they refuse to observe the poetry um, that is there and only see grammatical historical formations of text. They can't see all the things that the, that the scriptures themselves are holding up consistently together poetically. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I think what, so we, we say we've got to preach the whole counsel of God. And then we say, so that, you know, and we, and we mean a systematic theology, right. Or something, you know, or Jesus is the lamb of God. And we say, well, what that means is here's my doctrine of justification and atonement. Right. Right. right, um, right. And even, even to try and drop atonement down into a doctrine rather than 
um, historical act. Right. Uh, I think we, you know, uh, is is an example of it. Right. Whereas if, if I say Jesus is the Lamb of God, um, and am thinking in terms of it, uh, analogically, poetically, historically, and said, "Oh, I wonder if that means that." the animal that was killed to make the clothing for Adam and Eve was a lamb and Adam and Jesus was there present poetically as the animal was killed so that Adam and Eve could be covered with skins when their fig leaves failed. Right. That's a, I mean, could be, I, some, you know, I tend, I usually think it was a unicorn or something, but, but I don't know. About, <laughs> what? Okay. Rhinoceros, uh, maybe. Yeah, okay. Don't even, I can't, but, uh, I can't know. go there with you yet. <laughs> so we've got Hegel in the church. But it, we, we're not told what animal it is, but Jesus is the lamb of God. And we know they were told this day you will die. And they didn't die because an animal was killed in their place so that they could, so that they could have clothing. Right. So they they wore the death of an uh, they wore the life of an animal who died in their place. They were told that day you die and the animal died instead of them. Then Jesus is the Lamb of God. Right. That there's a poetic connection. Yeah. Yeah. That is beautiful. That's transformative. That actually resonates with the kind of being we are. Right. We are poets. Um, or at least we became poets the moment that Adam opened his eyes and saw, saw Eve, a, yeah. a, a naked woman, right? Yeah. And yeah. he was like, "What? I better start working on my rhetoric phase. I gotta start writing poetry because I gotta win me one of those, right? Right, right. Like, uh, I need to touch those." And and so he starts <laughs> starts writing poetry, right? We are, um, we and we are poets, uh, and not, uh, not not um not simple theologians. Um, and, and the thing is catechisms are important. They're great. They're for kids. Poetry is for adults, right? Poetry is how we mature. And we have flipped that all around and we read, um, Dr. Seuss to our kids. And then, Oh, our cat. Oh, shut up. I got time. We'll talk. (laughs) Uh, in conversation with poetry, is write that one down. Yeah. Okay. So but, now, but Hegel flips it around, right? And so he he puts the concept at the end, right? The the and and the poetry at the beginning, but God puts it the other way around. Okay. So then, what is you know when you're dealing with something that's Hegelian, you know, it's I feel like the answers are always the same. Like we really do have to go back to. The and this one we started with the Trinity, but you really have to go back to the beginning. And, but here's here's something that's really interesting, Jason. I think it's one thing to know what you're dealing with, and then how do you have a conversation with someone who's Hegelian? Because it's one thing to be like, "Oh, I know what this is," and then you call it out. That's Hegelianism, and then the people are like, "So." Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it doesn't really help just to identify what the thing is because it's like a chokehold. It doesn't help that you know it's a chokehold. It doesn't stop you from not getting choked out. <laughs> right. Right. You know, so yeah, how I mean, do you. I, I, I think that there's there's certain places that it starts, right? Um, it It starts in our churches, in our pulpits, in the way we approach one another, right? That um, That we stop going to church. 
um, thinking, what can we get out of it and start going to church thinking, who can we serve? Mm-hmm. Right. We, uh, so we, we, we quit thinking like, um, we, you know, we, we quit, th- quit thinking like consumers, right. Mm. Um, because the, that consumer mentality is, uh, uh, is thinking, you know, when, when we look around at the people and we say, dang, I got a whole, I got a whole congregation where, uh, uh, of people made in the image of God. Um, and how, how can I serve here? Right. Um, we have, we're just cutting off the Hegelianism at its root um, by, by lifting our eyes off of ourselves quit. Right. Cause so Hegel spends his whole life looking inward, right. His whole life looking inward. And um, so I think the first thing we've got to do is look outward, right? Stop looking inward. What can I get? What, how can I, you know, how can I, what am I, am I getting everything that I should out of this? Am I squeezing blood from this turnip um, called my local church and start saying like, Oh, I'm supposed to act like the triune God who lived in eternal communion, community of love of self-giving love um, from all eternity and then created us to image that. Well, what, how do we, how do we take the next step to make our church more of a community that reflects that triune love? Well, the first thing you could do is say, who can I love, right? Who can I love in a way that can't, they can't, and how can I love them in a way they can't return it, right? That it's not an exchange. Um, start looking at your, I, mean, I think husbands, they need to honor the heck out of their wife who's a homemaker, we, because there is not an economic, uh, and not, and stop thinking of it like an economic benefit, right? I've seen people do the math, like, well, if she went to work, we'd have to pay for childcare, we'd have to pay for all this. It makes economic sense. It's like maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but it's uglier <laughs> to send your wife to, right? It's it's beautiful. Homemaking is beautiful. Homemaking. Second Timothy tells us shuts the mouth of of uh, blasphemers, right? A uh, a woman that is beautifully living out uh, or, as a homemaker, um, he shuts the mouth of unbelievers. God is a homemaker. He Jesus says, "I go to prepare a home for you." God is a homemaker, and so she's living out that uh, the the image of God as a homemaker. And when we honor that glory in it, joy in it, you know, um, every day say, you know, I can't believe I get to be your husband. And of all of the women in the world, I get to be your husband. God has blessed me above and beyond what I could have ever asked for or imagined in giving me you learning to just honor, 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 um, the, our wives, um, that because that's because right at the center of mm. the, the entire yep false yep. metaphysic is dishonor of wives, right? Yep, yep, right. Because the um, economic realities we yeah the yeah. economic yeah exactly right. So if the heart of it is they looked at wives and say eh, not not as honorable, right? 
I mean, this is why you get to Victorian England and you get such a deep chauvinism, right? Because they have swallowed this Hegelianism whole. And so they've there's a really deep chauvinism all throughout Victorianism. Now, there's also some great, you know, poets and great writers in the in Victorian England that are fighting back against it. Um, but the chauvinism is pretty deep. And then feminism is birthed out of Victorian chauvinism where they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, you're going to dishonor us like this. We we will go get our own honor. And yeah, um, and then you see out of that, what I've been noticing is this misguided form of patriarchy that's birthed out of feminism which is yep. like okay which, which, which dishonors which the economic realities of their spouse right it's like that's not right. that's not right. helping yeah. not <laughs> and they don't even know they're to, doing it to like because the goal of the the goal of a husband should not be live in such a way that makes the feminists angry <laughs> That's but gonna happen anyway because feminists are just always gonna be angry. Yeah, it's gonna happen. I mean that that that's why the old feminists tend to be ugliest because they've been angry their whole lives and that you know, <laughs> you, know, all, you know you're gonna pull up next to that Subaru, that baby blue Subaru and look in the you know what you're gonna find, right? But <laughs> That's funny. But, yeah, so we were looking through cars the other day and there was a Subaru for sale and I was like, Ooh, that one's got all wheel drive and my wife looked at me and was like I'm not a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh yeah. That's what the Subaru means. Yeah. 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 So you know what? She's the funniest person I've ever met. Jason. So there's, but go ahead. Well, and I was, so I was going to say, so, um, if our goal is make feminists angry, um, that's, I mean, that's just setting a really low bar, right? Our goal should be that our wives flourish and become the person God created them to be, right? That we, that, that, and and the gas they run on, God tells us, is love, right? So we pour pour love and honor and honor and love and love and honor onto our wives, such that they flourish and become the woman that God created them to be. And then, as they you know shine like the stars, the the star that she is, as uh, Paul tells us, shines like a star in the sky. Uh, that people look at her and they say, "Oh my gosh, Jesus must be amazing." Mm. because that's yeah yeah that that, that's that's the goal um is and then and then the same goes for wives right that they that they look at their husband and they say what would it look like for me to pour so much respect on him that he is like what you know swimming in it what um that that he's like i you know i i tripped and fell into a a bowl of respect and I, I'm just swimming in it, um, n- not because he has earned it all, but because you know he's a, a, a husband made in the image of God, and and uh, he's yours, and you're just grateful. Right? So you just say, "I'm I'm gonna try and overwhelm him with respect," right? and then a mom and a dad together looking at their kids and saying, "I'm gonna overwhelm them with uh, love and respect and honor," right? That that I'm going to to um you know discipline as they discipline them as they need it but that discipline doesn't work right they they won't feel the sting of sin if they're not in fellowship that's right right? if they're in fellowship and that sin breaks the fellowship then the sting of sin is such that they say oh my gosh i need to get back into fellowship right but most kids i mean not most kids many kids 
they don't feel the sting of conviction for their own sin because they've been out of fellowship the whole time. They right? only it's, live out of fellowship. They live out of fellowship the whole time. And every once in a while they get smacked for it. Um, and, but we you know, with, with, with my kids, we would, um, you know, we would, they, they would sin. We would say, all right, you know, off to Babylon, they'd go to the bathroom and they'd get their spankings. And then, um, and then we would pray together and we would hug and, you know, and we had a G, uh, and Jesus, you know, after they pray, we would say, Jesus makes us and they would say, all clean, right? And we had, so from a very little age, for very young age, we wanted them, the fellowship to be the norm. So, so much so that, um, that, that, that the out of fellowship just feels like there's something so wrong that you've got to fix it. Well, right? and so, just, and, by, and so by the time you got teenagers, they sin against you and they walk away. And then two minutes later, they come back and they're like, we please forgive me. I need to get back into fellowship. Because bro, man, that feels, that feels wrong. Right. The most beautiful thing it's, in it the is, world right? to be able I to experience our, and go through that has been beautiful. It is right, and, and you're just like that's so great because the they, they've internalized yep. they've internalized the the um, the standard because to be out of the to be away from the standard is to be away from fellowship, right? So the 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 love the loving embrace um, to 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 run from the standard is to run from the loving embrace, right? That's those two things feel the same. This is this is why. People, I've always wondered, like, why is it that when church discipline doesn't seem nearly as impactful as it should be, particularly the Lord's table when it's removed? It's like, well, I don't get it anyway. So I've, I've been living out right. of fellowship for the long, longest since I haven't been getting the table. So why would I be concerned not getting the table now? I've been in this situation, it, which is like I've always wondered, like when we, we talk a lot, we'll talk about how that. You know, there's been wars over. It's like, oh, you're not gonna give me the table. I'll shut down your church, doggone it! <laughs> right. You know, because that yeah. was a serious thing because it was amounting to the fellowship that we have, both with God and with each other. And when you take that away, there's a serious rift. Well, we've taken it away from our normal form of worship. Right. That the rift now is just like normal. You know, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I guess I ain't getting it. So I, who cares? You know. Yeah. And but that's the same thing with our fellowship with our kids, which is why. Anyway, Sabbathing and enjoying that time with your kids is super important. Jason, I, w- I want to drill down here real quick. I think one of the, th- just to summarize some of the things that you said about how to kind of fix this, because it, you know, I've heard people talk about Hegel before and everybody who I hear talk about Hegel always wants to give you some argumentative, some argumentation to deal with it in some way, you know, or how to fight what they're doing, if they can get through describing what it actually is. Um, right. Um, if, but you know, I think what you just laid out in, at least for me, in the fact that economic realities versus ontological realities, and if that's true, then the only way to really fight this is to live and believe in the way that the God has truly made the world so that the beauty of the economic realities are are looked at like you said they shine and they're embraced and so you only do that from believing and and acting in the same way that the father is interacting and engaging with the the son and the son and the father and engaging and acting with the spirit you only get that in a trinitarian worldview and so the, the the foundation of the home 
doesn't only deal with the Hegelian, you know, I always think about this bright light shining in darkness, right? It doesn't just obliterate the Hegelian worldview, but also deals with some of the current problems we have as it relates to globalism, I think, and the progressive movement, Mm -hmm. right? So inside of globalism, when you start looking at the family and how powerful the family is, um, globalism is trying to remove the boundaries and the borders because it doesn't believe that the world can exist or does exist with different economic realities. It, it, it thinks that those ontological realities and those economic realities are all the same. And so it can't live in a Trinitarian world. And so it has to, dispose of the ontological realities in order to be able to make everybody at the same economic reality, right? Everybody, right, right. which is like an absolute mess. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's an absolute mess. But with the family, well, so here's the thing, yeah. because think about it. We, we actually, in America, we live in a world in, in a place where for the first time in history, most of the people in a nation in a major nation have all of their economic needs met Mm. and, and has it led to everybody being super satisfied and everything going great, right? No, it's led to them saying, and it's, this has happened in other times when you have empires, you reach, reach a pinnacle, they look around and they say, well, this didn't satisfy. Maybe I should Mm. become a, homosexual maybe i should become a lesbian maybe trans that maybe if i do that right i still don't i still haven't found a place in which i fit and everything's working right right. so they so they start they dig they dig one layer deeper to their nature and say what if i change that Mm. right because they've changed their economic status right um like Chris Rock says, yeah, America's got poor people. We keep our poor people fat, right? Right. <laughs> They've got <laughs> their economic status has been fixed. And, the, um, and, but then they look in and they say, well, that didn't work. Right. So maybe we need, what's the next layer of ontological revolution that I can get at? Well, my gender. Right. And that's the sign that you look throughout history. It's the sign that the empire is collapsing on under its own economic weight, right? Is homosexuality becomes normative as empires fall all throughout history. So we're not new. We're not special. People are like, it's never been like this. Like, yeah, sure. It was the end of the British empire end of the Roman empire and the French empire. It was like this, right? This is what happens. Um, because when, when we hit that, when we think we've solved our ontological displacement, uh, we when when we think we're solving ontological displacement uh-huh. by giving everybody the economic status that they need, they discover it's not there, and so they dig a, another layer to the next layer of their nature. This is Romans one, and they say, "What if I act in this unnatural way?" Then, right, I'll, I'll act directly against my nature, thinking that that will satisfy because I thought I was going to satisfy it this way and it didn't work. So now I, I thought I will satisfy my nature this way. It didn't work. So I'll act against my nature. And that's where we are right now. And what I've learned from watching from my wife, my wife just, she's looked around and she said, man, we better, we better get all these, all these Christian families better get their tables ready because they're going to need to retrain a whole society what it means to be men and women because mm. they're because they got all these children that are working against it right so, so i've watched my wife tell our own kids this hey you guys 
you got to be ready because your tables are going to be the place where the world relearns how to be men and women. So get ready. That's what your job is going to be in the next generation. Um, and the power that's, that's, you know, the thing, that's what I was trying to get at the power of what we have in the relationship of men and women is the cure to what we're seeing on an international level of even globalism. Right. Like, right. We, yeah, yeah. we want to fight globalism from a top down federal government, yeah. all that kind of places. But it's really like, no, you need to get very self sustained, sufficient, joyful, happy in your home. Let yep. that produce fruit and light in relationship to others that are around you. That becomes its own self sustaining thing, you know. Yeah. And then those communities that are able to function like that learn to love each other at a very local individual level. Right. That creates good borders and fences for neighbors and also allows a form of trade individually. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so right, that, you, that you develop the uh, just the, that you develop eyes that see your neighbors again. Yes. Right. Yes. And And through that, then. The, it removes the need for any form of uh, another sphere that is not granted that responsibility to then operate because it's individuals economically relating to each other uh, uh, separate from a, na- a nation that is decided to become an individual and relate between each other. Right. So and what I mean by that is right. we have a trade with each other as loving each other. That the the nation itself doesn't begin to have any responsibility or trade in. And if we can't get that on a local right. communal level, we don't get away from globalism nas- uh, internationally. We don't get away from that. Right. You can't yeah. you can't fix something from the top down. It really does have to come from the bottom up. And it's not something that you get out of overnight. There isn't one lever or one thing that you do to get away from World Economic Forum. Or from right no, globalism as we see it, or from the progressive movement that we see right now, right? And and God, you know, God is a converting God. We don't know which thing He converts and which thing He buries. Mm. Um, you know, we the the World Economic Forum is not outside of God's reach. He might just start converting those guys. That's right. And the World Economic Forum becomes a. a uh, turns into a blessing, right? Yeah. We don't, I mean, we don't know. We don't know right. the story yeah. and it's, and we don't have to know the story because we know, because we can know what's in our jurisdiction. That's right. And that's we can right. start there. Right. That's, and that's what we, we always want to say, we want to fix other people's jurisdictions, but God tells us, you know, Hey, I've given you a garden, you garden oh. it well, and you will stand before Kings. But that's because we don't think submission works. That goes back into what we were yeah. talking about earlier. Right. We, we don't, we, you know, when we saw, when we see someone outside of their lane, what we want to do is go jump in that lane instead of saying, wait, hold on a second. What am I supposed to be submitted to and under? And how do I then be faithful in that until I talk about this all the time, uh, the spheres of sovereignty that you have, you can't just jump out of it to go operate. That is not submission. And so, right. <laughs> right? right. But um, you were, you were supposed to operate then in the sphere that you're in, that you're operating in until, and I believe God does this, as things move and operate, your sphere, your opportunity will open up as you're faithful in the place that you're in. Yeah. And yeah. people will come looking 
That's right. Will will come looking for advice on how to garden their garden if yours is flourishing. <laughs> That's <laughs> if, right. If you wander around the neighborhood trying to tell everybody how to garden instead of gardening your own garden, then you know even if you give great advice, nobody will listen. We had there's yeah. a, a good example of that is we had you know my my wife's brownies are had became famous throughout the college of. University of California, Santa Cruz. I've never had it. They, oh, they're so good. And she would, um, we would have pizza and brownies and just invite people over. And it wasn't long before we had, you know, um, you know, 40, 40 college students showing up because of the brownies. Right. Um, and, and that, but we also had these long open conversations that they couldn't have anywhere else. Right. So, have somebody um that's tempted to you know wear uh men's clothing you know girl tempted to wear men's clothing to get respect right uh, we call them a trans trans i don't even i don't know all the terminology i never felt the need to learn it because you just treat every individual as an individual um uh, and uh don't worry about it but the um they'd come over for brownies because they heard the brownies were really good a friend invite them um and so they'd say what's What's your take on this? And we'd have long conversations. My kids are little, you know, seven, eight, nine, and they're sitting at the table hearing my wife and I have these conversations or, you know, a young lady say, okay, so uh, last week at a party, I got drunk. I made out with a girl. Does that make me a lesbian? Right. And my my daughter, I remember my nine-year-old daughter, look at me like, How's dad going to respond? Like, this is not what I saw coming. Right. And say, okay, that, that is a sin, but it doesn't change who you are or who you're created to be. Right. So you just ask God to forgive you. And then he does. Yeah. And then you go back to who God created you to be. Right. That they're, that they're thinking I am, I'm actually shifting because they're thinking I'm shifting my ontological status through my sexual activities. Yep. I'm changing. I'm ontologically. I, I have the the levers to my uh, being uh, can are are uh, the knobs and levers that control it and can move it and change it are my sexual activities. That's Gnosticism, right? We've dealt with that heresy before, and we've defeated it. And then it it's it's got ten heads, right? The the it we cut off one and then another one grows back and we have to keep fighting it. But we've dealt with it before, so we don't have to be afraid of it. We can we know that the truth sets free, and so we can just continue to offer the truth. But the brownies are also a part of the truth. That's right. right? The, That's the, right. The 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 fact that they sit down at the table. I remember a, a young Japanese girl tasting the brownie and her eyes getting huge and. And looking at and saying, what is this? So that's called a brownie. And she's like, how is this existing? Right. How is and And watching. And she started taking pictures of it, taking pictures of herself with the brownie. And it, I don't know what she was doing with the pictures, but she was blown away with the that something could be so delicious. Right. That's a part of the truth. Right. Yeah. And. and my that's not its own separate thing my wife loves people and so she tried 30 different brownie recipes until she found the most delicious one right so you 
you feed somebody at the table, that's true, right? This, that's love. That's, um, and that's the, that's the reason I was able to have conversations about, you know, Gnosticism and sexuality was because the brownies were that true and the truth sets us free. <laughs> you know, the other thing, and we should go cause we're done. Uh, it's two yeah, hours here. Done. We should be done. But I, you know, the other thing that I've, I've noticed, um, about myself that I had to work out of, you know, if I'm working on a vehicle and I need a tool and I have to go to the store and get that tool, I go grab that tool. But on my way back, there is a certain sort of walk and swagger and attitude that I have because I know that I'm about to tear this joker up because I got the yeah. tool now to be able to fix this thing, which I didn't have before, which was a problem. We gotta stop looking at sin like we don't have the tool. Like right. we yeah, are, yeah. we are so, so um, afraid of sin. Like, oh, it's sin. No, oh. you know. And it's like yeah. we we know how to kill sin. We know the antidote right. for sin. We got the tool. Put the apply yeah. the tool and stop running around like you don't have the tool in your hand. You know that's what drives me so nuts. As Christians here, like here, sin like they ain't never had none. What you talking about? <laughs> Have you not been repenting? Have you? Do you not know what the right. tool is for this? And I think one of the ways that we can practice is when we see sin in our kids. It's like, oh, baby, I know what that is. That's a little dragon. I got a sword for yeah. it. Let's go deal with right. it. I got you. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and knowing that that's what God created our kids for is to be dragon slayers, curse right. breakers. You know, they're following the the curse breaking dragon slayer Jesus. And so when they've got when they're little, we help them hold the head down. So that's that they right. can whack at whack it, it, right? That's right. Uh, because they're going to, someday they got big dragons to slay. That's why we right? baptize That's them. what God made them for. Did I say that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> that's a good time to end. Right there, boom, just let it <laughs> Right there. That's why we baptize them. Turn them into curse-breaking dragon slayers <laughs> like their Lord. Amen.